This is episode 16 of the Being Seen podcast. My guest is Reese Butler, Being Seen in a Crisis. I honestly know that there are parts of me that I don't touch, I don't go in and see. So for somebody else to see me as I truly am has to be impossible if, if I myself can't. And I've never met anybody who could. It's an attempt. You work towards trying to be that who that person is deep down inside, that soul, that whatever it is that drives you to be who it is you are. But it, it takes work to get at it. And then it takes that transparency, that, that willingness to be vulnerable, to put yourself out there. You are listening to the Being Seen podcast, where Jenny Q gives you the resources to get unstuck. Join us every week as Jenny introduces you to a wealth of voices who share their own being seen moments, along with tips, tricks, and insights. With a story full of real-life experiences, Jenny Q is holding your hand as you go in search of your own being seen moment. Because you can live your best life, despite the pain of the past or uncertainty in the future. In fact, it may actually be your superpower. And now your host, Jenny Q. After losing his wife, Kristen Brooks Russell, to suicide on April 7th, 1998, Reese founded the Kristen Brooks Hope Center and the National Hopeline Network, 1-800-SUICIDE. Since 1998, when Reese turned his focus to the prevention of suicide, he has helped launch several other organizations, the National Council for Suicide Prevention, the California Suicide Prevention Advocacy Network, and the Virginia Suicide Prevention Council. Reese continues advancing the cause of suicide prevention by developing and improving existing suicide prevention programs and erasing mental health stigma and spreading the message of help and hope. Reese has been invited to over 200 college campuses to present his Alive Mental Health Fair and keynote speech on hope and the miracles that brought 800 Suicide into existence. Now, before we start, I want to remind you that if you're having thoughts of suicide, please immediately stop this podcast and call 1-800-SUICIDE or go to imalive.org to chat with someone anonymously who can help. And with that, welcome my guest, Reese Butler. You know, Reese, it's an honor to know you. It's an honor to have you on my podcast. It's an honor every time we have an interaction. Uh, again, not just because of what you've done in your past and how many countless people that you help, but just, I, I agree, every time we have an interaction, it's it, the synergy is, is awesome. And I do want to uh, first say thank you so much for joining me. I am, it's my pleasure and my honor. Well, I want to give I want to give the listeners just a little bit of a background on why we even met. It turns out that I have two adult children with serious mental illness. Shortly after one of them attempted suicide, a mutual friend of ours, J.S. Gilbert, introduced us. And coincidentally, you happen to be driving through Boise, Idaho, which is where I lived. For the first time. 
Really? And so, <laughs> and so also coincidentally, I didn't have anything on my calendar that night. Neither did you. We met and we talked for four hours and it seemed like about 30 minutes. I agree. <laughs> and the things, I didn't know why I was meeting you. JS just said, Hey, I want you to meet this guy. And I was like, Okay. You know, oh, well, actually, 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 let me correct that. He did say the founder of 1-800-SUICIDE. And you live on the East Coast, right? Yeah, uh, Maryland. Okay. So I think it's a reasonable assumption that when he suggested that, I thought, great, you know, maybe we'll have a Zoom chat at some point, you know, whatever. Nope. There you were, right in Boise, Idaho. Uh, the chances of that literally are now my best friend who was in the car with me when I when I was talking to you uh, would actually give you the statistical data. <laughs> it's not. a Yeah, it, it's not out of the realm of possibility, but I've never been to Idaho, any part of Idaho in my entire life, except for that week when we went up to Sandpoint and we were coming back. We would never have come back through Boise to go to San Francisco. But we did because he and his wife wanted to retire potentially in Idaho, and she wanted him to look at properties in Boise. And Paula, by the way, uh, you would just absolutely love her. She is, if, if I can credit one person with saving my life after Kristen died, uh, it was Paula. And, and the reason why I say that is because, first of all, she lost her best friend, her cousin, to cancer. Uh, just a year prior to Kristen's death. So she had already gone through that severe grief loss, uh, losing her best friend, her cousin, that helpless feeling, the, the guilt, all that stuff. And so she knew on some level what I would be going through. And so she uh, did two major things. One was she took my calls at two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> you know, when I was, just absolutely falling apart and, and, you know, ready to kill myself. And the other thing was behind the scenes, and I didn't know it at the time, but she uh, persuaded Ed, who my best friend, her husband, who would email me maybe once or twice a year, literally best friends, but literally once or twice a year, because that was not, he didn't communicate that way. Uh, it was not his way of communicating. In the year after Kristen died, 365 days in a row, he em emailed me every single day. Usually it was just some stupid joke. But if I didn't respond to it, he would ping me again. And if I didn't respond to that, he would then call me. And so I was on his front front radar for uh, you know, making sure I was safe and okay. Wow, and that's that's amazing. That's amazing. And you know, before we get <laughs> because yeah. of yeah. Uh before we hit record for this episode, you and I were talking uh a lot about what being seen means and what it, how it's how it's so different to each person. And I really want to get to that, but before we do, I want to ask you if you could please share the story that you shared with me that night that we met in Boise, Idaho. And it just so happens to be 21 years ago today, as of the date of this recording, where um, actually it was passed. So it didn't happen 21 years ago, but it was short, shortly before that, where you had another coincidental 
interaction with Senator Kennedy and you were uh, that accidental or not accidental, but coincidental meeting led to the first funding of the first suicide hotline. So could you share that story? Because when you, and honestly, 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 when you were sharing that story, I was, I was listening to every detail thinking what an amazing life, what an amazing story to just have that happen. So uh, I hope I'm not giving too big of a buildup for the listeners, but, but please share that story. And, and it is, by the way, the same energy that put me in Boise and, and you and me connecting. It was, you can't say somebody predicted, planned that, uh, or that it was coincidental. Sorry. It, 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 once in your life, yes, but I have a hundred of those stories. So uh, Amazing. You, you just have to be open to it. Uh, I have ADHD. And for those who don't know what that is, it's a deficit. Uh, attention deficit uh, disorder, and it can be very debilitating to uh, somebody who doesn't know they have it, uh, especially because they don't have the tools. And the most important thing to do is obviously show up on time for appointments, return calls, right? All the the basic, simple stuff that everybody seems to be able to do without Google uh, Calendar. Uh, But I never could. And I would literally come up a day later, an hour later, whatever, uh, but I'd been asked by a good friend in Minneapolis who helped me uh, put 1-800-SUICIDE on the map. And he said, hey, Reese, you're the only survivor we have in D.C. Would you please go down uh, to the Senate Dirksen building? They're going to have a rally on a mental health bill that Senator uh, Wellstone and Senator Kennedy were co-sponsoring. And he said, just get a seat, wear a T-shirt. You know, it says rah, 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 you know, something about suicide prevention, mental health. Uh, and he said, can you do that? I said, yeah, I think I can do that. <laughs> so I went to the Senate Dirksen building the next day, and I had written down that the time was 10 o'clock, but it was 11. And so I get there, the room is totally empty. And so I actually went and knocked on a few senators' doors till I found somebody who could verify that it was the correct room. I said, what the heck? At least I'll get good seats. <laughs> so I went in the room and went, and sat down in the front row, which is what I typically do when I go to any event or thing. I want to be close to the action. And I didn't realize that the first two rows were for the speakers and for the senators, because uh, I'd never been to one of these things. And all of a sudden, doors open up, and in walks Senator Pete Domenici from New Mexico. And he is the lone Republican who supported mental health issues. Uh, so I felt compelled to get up and go over and thank him on behalf of survivors because we didn't have any other Republicans. We had plenty of Democrats who were supporting mental health issues, but I wanted him to know how important what he was doing to anchoring down the, the Republican side of the aisle. And so I went over to him and I said, I'm Reese Butler. Uh, my wife, Kristen, died by suicide. I'm the founder of 1-800-SUICIDE. And I just want to thank you on behalf of all survivors for what you do. It means so much to us. Shook his hand. Yeah, did the polite thing, and then just went and sat back down. There was no ulterior motive. There was no other. It was just my gut told me, you got to thank this man. I love that. I love that when the gut tells you to do stuff and you listen. Okay. And I listen. <laughs> and so, so I sit back down, and, I, you know, because Al Klusner, who was the one who sent me to, to, to this meeting, uh, made me think like there was going to be like five people in the room, right? And, <laughs> 
The room ended up being packed. There was standing room only in the back. They were literally out in the hallway. And here I am sitting in the front row. With a t-shirt on. <laughs> with a spin. Yes. Suicide <laughs> Advocacy Network t-shirt on. Yes. I love it. And uh, so after Paul Wallstone and, and Senator Kennedy and, and Senator uh, Domenici got done with their dog and pony show, you know, their posters and saying, pass this bill, pass this bill. Uh they started bringing up mental health consumers, which is, I found out later, this is what they typically do. Whenever they're pushing a bill, they want, who's it going to benefit to come up and talk about how it's going to help them? And at one point, whoever the next speaker was supposed to be was not moving fast enough for Pete Domenici. And I came to learn years later, this man had like zero tolerance for anything that wasn't happening right away. So, so he looks at he looks at me. I'm sitting in the front row. He says, Are you the next speaker? I said, But of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I got up to the podium and there's Senator Kennedy sitting in the front row, right? I was born in Boston, you know, grew up my family did not like the Kennedys, but we we knew the Kennedys. We all did, right? We they, all knew the Kennedys. They just didn't know us. And so here I'm talking to him like he's family, like I'm talking about the story about what happened to Kristen, because uh, we had literally had the memorial service two years earlier in uh, Hyannis. So it became real personal. And and then I started talking about crisis hotlines and suicide hotlines and how the fact that less than 10% of them had actual certifications of any kind. And I said less than one percent of the volunteers and the and the staff in them had any kind of outside certification of any kind. And I said, we would not allow our kids to go to a daycare center without some kind of state certification. Why is it that we're allowing suicide hotlines to exist without providing some kind of oversight for them? And without I got a standing ovation. And so I went and sat back down. Senator Kennedy got up and came over and sat next to me. And one of the most important lessons I learned that day was that when you share your story, you share your pain, your walk um, with another person or with a group, it then gives that person or that group and people in it permission to share theirs with you. Mm-hmm. And so he starts telling me how two weeks earlier, one of his close friends, now mind you, I never met this man. He does not know me other than this five minute impromptu uh, unplanned speech starts telling me how two weeks earlier his best friend in Hyannis had shot and killed himself Mm. uh, after his son had uh, died from a a rare bone cancer that uh, Ted was paying for the treatments and paying for the air flights to Seattle. Um, So many parts of the story that he told me, but uh, the bottom line was he was still in shock and in grief over this. And I'd been told months earlier by Tipper Gore's office, because uh, I was trying to get funding for 1-800-SUICIDE because they were using us as their 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 promo on their MTV PSAs. Uh, she said, find, write a piece of legislation, find a friendly senator, and get them to sponsor it. And so I had the legislation in my pocket. You was, just, again, so happened to have the piece of legislation in your pocket. No, that was, that was deliberate because okay. I knew, I knew, I, I knew that Ellen, in fact, Al told me, he says, make sure you see Ellen. Ellen Garrity was, uh, Paul Wellstone's health aide, who I had met once in Minneapolis. So I knew what she looked like. And he said, make sure you say hi to Ellen that she knows you're there. He didn't say, 
bring legislation to her or anything. But I knew, because I had already written that piece, I was going to give it to her and see if she would give it to Paul. And, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So uh, I pulled the legislation out, a draft of it, and I hand it to Senator Kennedy. And he sits there and literally reads three pages. Wow. 750 words, right? And he goes all the way to the end of the third page in the bottom where it had the money asked. And he looks at it and he looks at me and says, is this all you need? I said, yeah. Are are you able to share what that amount was? $3 million. Okay. And he says, is this all you need to net? I said, yeah, to network uh, and certify 200 crisis centers. We could do that for about $3 million. Uh, And he said, oh, this is nothing. He said, we waste more uh, every year on Capitol Hill on lunches than this. He said, I'm definitely behind this. And then he said something else that was very off color or very colorful. He said, most of what we do up on Capitol Hill is uh, crap. (laughs) And he said, every once in a while, though, we get to do something good. He said, this is good. Wow. I was like, oh, yeah, I agree. That's good. So I, I wasn't like awestruck or anything. It was just a conversation with another human being, right? And so it breaks up. The room breaks up. Uh, that goes back to the Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon story. So I find Ellen. And I uh, I had another copy. And so I said, hey, Ellen, um, I've drafted a, a piece of legislation. And it would be really great if you could show it to Paul and see if he'd be willing to sponsor it to fund 1-800-SUICIDE and certifying the crisis centers. She put her hand on my arm and she said, Reese, I don't want you to get your hopes up. You know, sometimes these things take years to wind through the process. And then at the end, they can get line item vetoed right out like that. So don't get your hopes up. I said, but we have Ted Kennedy support. She said, why didn't you say so from the beginning? <laughs> and that, and yeah. that, was six, that was six weeks prior to today, 21 years ago. Beautiful, beautiful. So, so here's, so let's connect some dots here because, because that was truly history in the making to get the first funding for a suicide hotline. Now, a lot has changed. I don't want to get too in the weeds of all the things that happened between then and now, but 11 years ago, you founded the world's first virtual crisis center. And I want to share something that recently happened that like yesterday or the day before uh that makes this so important uh as you've probably heard there's uh, a lot of information now about Britney Spears conservatorship and yes. and what's going on with that so one of the people that I follow I don't know if you know her Dr. Nicole Lapera she's the holistic psychologist she has um the book called uh how to do the work. It's on New York Times bestselling list. And she is really shaking things up in the world of mental health. Uh, and she, and she was sharing, I follow her because she's brilliant and she's so real and so relatable. And she shares her journey as she goes. And one of the things that she shared in her Instagram story this past weekend, I, I really was within the last 48 hours. I don't remember exactly when, because, you know, when you sit down to scroll, who pays attention to what time it is. But what she shared was comments coming from other people saying how Britney Spears' experience is exactly why they don't reach out. 
someone said one time I called the suicide hotline and they within they asked me if I had a plan and I did. So within minutes, I had them knocking on my door and taking me away. And uh, I, it was a 5150. I don't know what that is. Admitting me with a 5150. That's California. Okay. And, and so against her will, they admitted her. And, sh and she said, I will never call the suicide hotline again. So of course, because what I've learned with you and your work and what you've done, I replied to Dr. Nicole and I said, this is why I support imalive.org. They have trained people who will be, it's a virtual crisis center where you text in and they are trained to stay with you until you come up with another solution for yourself. And even saying that I get chills. So uh, she replied to me and she said, I've never heard of them. I will check them out. And so I like, how cool is that? Because that's what needs to happen. And that's what you created. And so 11 years ago, tell us about how you came up with the idea because you're way ahead. Like you're way ahead of everybody else. 11 years ago, think about it. 11 years ago, we bear, we didn't have any messenger. We didn't have any, you know, we base, I don't think we even had touch screens, did we? Uh, 2008, uh, I think the touch screens came in. Yeah, just, yeah. So, so, okay. So, but just barely like, so yeah. anyway, so how did that happen? What was it that uh, made you even have the idea to go virtual versus the uh, phone 800 suicide. I know, I know there's something that has to do with the federal government taking over the phone number and, and kind of changing it from your initial vision. But what was it that, that inspired the uh, I'm alive.org? Well, it's, it's very, and again, this is where uh, me saying I uh, or taking credit for all these wonderful things uh, is wrong because there's always other people that either spur you on or support you in doing it. You're all important. I'm important, but so equally are those other people that got me to that next place. And Eleanor Letcher is one of those people. And in 2005, when I was embedded with the National Mental Health Association, trying to save 1-800-Suicide from the feds, uh, she came to my office physically and uh, and I, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but she lives up in near New York City and I was down in Washington, D.C. She made a special trip down to see me and she said, Reese, you need to start a online chat, text, suicide uh, hotline support system. We need it now. That was 2005. So if anything, I dragged my heels Seriously, that took six years. It, it shouldn't have. It should have been done. The, as soon as she left that office, I should have been, you know, building the plans and launching it within a year after that. So, Eleanor, uh, I have never forgotten that moment. Uh, also, when she left the office, she asked me if she could check her email. It was like a Yahoo email. And she did. And she left it open with her password. And I was like, wow, talk about a trusting person. So I, 
you know, obviously did not look at her emails and closed it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I, mean, I was getting nervous. I'm like, oh, please don't tell me no, you're no, an email. No, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's very important what you do when nobody's watching. That's actually more important than what you do when people are watching. And that's how, you know, if you, if you don't see yourself as, as you really are, you know, you're putting out a fake persona to others, uh, don't bother. You know, well, just, and this is, you know, you've just kind of gone into that area that we were talking about before we went live with the being seen, right? Yeah. And we were talking about how, how it means something different with, with every person. And, uh, so I really kind of like this segue not to take away from I'm live. <laughs> like, I want to hear more about that because that's amazing. Um, and, the, so and the story how I'm alive came to be yeah. is an amazing story and it is well worth telling. But it is also important to remember that it should have been done earlier. It could have been done earlier. And Eleanor Letcher was the one who put the idea in my head to do it. Uh, so, but it was obviously six years later that it launched. Well, let's and, put a, let's put a bookmark in what you were saying about being seen and seeing yourself and all of that and tell the story of, of, uh, I'm alive.org. Uh, and, and you've shared how the idea was implanted in your head, but, but n not so much how you launched it, but how does it operate? How does it serve people? What does it do for people? Um, it's, it all goes back to the 1940s um, with a, a psychiatrist uh, by the name of Dr. Carl uh, Rogers out of Buffalo, New York. And he came up with the patient-centered uh, treatment concept. And that if you're going to try to work with somebody who is suffering from depression or other mental health uh, issue, um, you cannot fix them. They are the only ones who can fix themselves at best. Uh, your job as the person who's trying to help them navigate that uh, should never cross the line into telling them what to do or forcing them to do something. My God, that's the worst thing you could do. Uh, so we follow, uh, it's called the Rogerian uh, concept. And we follow that, we adhere to it 100%. And even the concept of giving a referral out saying, here is a location, here's a support group, here's a whatever it is that they, the thing that they need, that is verboten as far as Dr. Carl Rogers was concerned. We break that one. So if somebody does ask us for, you know, what is a good resource in their local area, we'll refer them most likely to 211, which is the, the cool uh, community resource for everybody in America, pretty much, anywhere there's a population base. Right. Uh, but we don't, we never tell them what to do. Um, we reflect back what they're saying. Uh, cause sometimes when somebody is in a crisis, they don't remember even what they said two seconds ago. Uh, so we try to help them get centered. We try to help them calm down and breathe. And we reflect back to them what they've already said to us. And what we also learned from Dr. Carl Rogers is everybody pretty much has all of the tools and knowledge within them to help themselves, fix themselves. Um, but when you're in a crisis, just because you have the roadmap and you have the, the toolbox doesn't mean you can access it or pay attention to it. So our job is to help them calm down to the point where they can go back and access that roadmap and that toolbox 
Uh, and that's what we do. And, and we don't do anything beyond that. Um, it's unconditional and it is non-judgmental. We don't see people as a gender. We don't see people as a race. It's not even an option to learn that unless somebody wants to say, I am a female. I am, uh, of Indonesian descent. Yeah. And why would they? They wouldn't. So we just treat everybody exactly the same way. And the coolest thing about the, the chat world is they could very well be that person that they're saying they are, but they could also very well be your cousin next door playing a prank on you. you don't know. So sure. our, our job is never to deviate or suspect that they are trying to pull a prank, but to always be constant in that, in that response. And as a result, it works. And, and I've never heard anybody ever say, I'm never going to go back to I'm alive again. And, and it certainly would never be because we would do intervention because we wouldn't. And, you know, with internet, you know, with IP addresses, you know, you, you could literally pinpoint something unless they're using a proxy server, but we don't even let that data be seen by our volunteers or our supervisors. They don't even see that IP data. We keep that hidden. We make sure that it's uh, stripped out. That's so good. That's so good. And I, I really want to point out that a difference between one hundred suicide, besides the obvious one's phone, one's, you know, text-based, um, is you help anyone in crisis. You, it, if somebody's having, you know, it, it doesn't even matter what their crisis is. Am I, am I right? That's correct. Yeah. So let's say a parent whose child is, uh, you know, exhibiting signs of depression, they could reach out to you. Absolutely. Uh, a parent who, uh, whose child's struggling in school and the school is saying it has to be uh, ADHD or something else, they could reach out to you. Anybody can. Uh, yeah. They don't have to be in a crisis. Uh, okay. If, if, our, if our chat rooms are full and, and the queue is backing up and somebody is just chit-chatting about the weather, no, we, we would say, look, uh, we're, we're having a busy uh, period right now and we have people in crisis that are in the queue. Uh, so they would, they, they would end that, but not somebody who's in a crisis. Right. Right. You stay on the, what do you call it? A call? What do you call it? Uh, it's an interaction. It's a session. So you stay on the session as long as it takes for the person to choose a new solution. Now I want to ask you, you, I mean, I think you would be disappointed if I didn't ask this since, since the podcast is on being seen. <laughs> I mean, it is being seen. How much of the effectiveness of the sessions with people in crisis is the fact that they felt seen? Uh, it's a really interesting question because there's a huge difference between obviously in person, uh, on the telephone, and then the chat. Because in person, you've got the 3D, you've got everything, you know, the smell, you know, the hearing, the, 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 all the senses are, are, are touched. And, and with the telephone call, all you're basically getting is the sound, but you're getting inflection and so forth. Uh, with the chat, it's flat. All you're seeing are words. Uh, and the coolest thing about that is, uh, and you got to flip this on its head. Uh, somebody who goes in person to see, a person who's going to support them, let's say a, a social worker, a mental health therapist, a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, whatever. If 
that person's got a serious problem and they're going to work at it for a long period of time uh, to get to a, to a solution. It has been shown in studies to take upwards of two years to gain the confidence of that helper by the person in crisis before they will actually tell the truth about what's going on in their life for real, right? Up to yeah. two years. Yeah. Granted, it can happen in the first session, but generally it is way down the road, right? On the telephone, all of our studies and data show that it takes upwards, almost minimum of 10 minutes of talking. So we're talking back and forth for 10 minutes before that caller, that person in crisis, trusts the call taker where they can share what's going on with them. 10 minutes, right? Amazing. Which you improvement over two years, right? Yeah, a little bit. Right. And I'm alive in the chat world. Guess what? Almost the first words that they're typing out is what's really going on. Wow. There's no, there is no buffer. There's no period in between of gaining the confidence and trust because they feel anonymous, which is the opposite of what you're, you're saying here. Uh, they feel safe which is the most important uh, piece that we offer. And that is that we're non-judgmental. We don't know who they are. We're never going to know who they are. Uh, it's, it's completely blind. And so they feel safe talking about what's going on, no matter how horrific what they're going through is. So, uh, so I want to I jump in here. I wouldn't say feeling anonymous is the opposite of being seen. I, okay. I would say, like, for example... Um, I love when I can go places where I have complete autonomy, like nobody airports are one of those places, right? Tr road trips. I love road trips because, and, and, and what happens is for me in those times and spaces, I can feel more seen because I'm more authentic and I don't have to put up any, uh, it, 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 even if it's self-imposed, I don't have to put up with, put, put up any persona or, you know, show or anything. So when I have an interaction with someone at the airport, it's truly me. Think of how many times we get on a plane and we tell the stranger that we don't even know their name. We tell them our story or they tell us our story or it's a, you know, a nice balance and we never see them again. But we feel so seen after that. So uh, I wonder, but, but one thing that you said, which is huge, is they feel safe. Safety is vital for being seen. And being vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's, I love that. So there's, there's virtually zero, you let you see what I did there, virtually zero risk with the virtual crisis center. Yeah, there's virtually zero risk when they text in. And so, um, do yeah, you... The only, the only bad bad thing that could happen would be on their end, you know, that their, sure. their parent or their spouse walks in their room and sees them typing. That That's the only thing that we could think of that would be a bad outcome. It would never happen from our end. Right. Uh, and, and I love in, it. In 10 years of doing this, uh, I can honestly say, say there's been zero bad outcomes uh, that we know about. In other words, we certainly never got involved, so therefore we would not know. Whereas I have a book this thick on the bad outcomes of people that called the hotlines. Yes. Don't, don't you mean 11 years, by the way? No, 11 years um, was, was <laughs> the 
publishing in the Boston Globe announcing that it's going to be launched. Okay, gotcha. Uh, we, we actually launched April 12th, um, uh, 10 years ago. Okay, all months, right. Two months, Beautiful. 10 years ago. Well, you know, every interaction that I've had with anyone in your organization, including my daughter, when I shared with her what you did, she uh, raised the money to become a trained volunteer and, you know, she has uh, been on been in many sessions and it's, it's enriching for her life, you know, and yeah, it, it goes both ways. Yeah. Um, the, the helpers uh, are supervisors who are also volunteers. Uh, they're amazing people and they're in 40 different countries. And the reason why they do it is because, as you just said about your daughter and the interactions, it is rewarding because they know it's real. Yeah. Yes. Well, they don't know that every interaction is real, but I mean, almost every day we're posting a comment that somebody who was helped then emailed us in the next day after their interaction yeah. saying, and by the way, all of our volunteers, all of our supervisors, every one of them, their name is Alex. Everyone. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's androgynous. It could be a male, it could be a female. Right. Uh, and, and we had to assign a name uh, to, to uh, you know, for, for the program. And we didn't want a, a person's name to be assigned to an individual because that, that carries with it the judgment. Male totally. Uh, totally. Plus, it breaks that, that privacy barrier and so forth. And so we had to come up with a name. And uh, the, the gentleman who wrote the code for the first app that went live 10 years and two months ago, uh, his name is Alex. He also happens to be my brother-in-law, my wife's brother. Um, so uh, she takes great pride in in telling the story about how we came up with Alex. I love it. I love it. Leosha is her nickname for him, and Alexei is the correct uh, pronunciation. He's Russian. Oh, nice. Oh, very good. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so the organization's amazing. And uh, I really, I'm really just in awe of all the work that you that you do. And now we put we, I'm going to go back a little bit, because we put a bookmark in something that we were talking about being seen, and uh, is not quite the same as seeing like be like okay instead of instead of going there let me just ask you what does being seen mean to you in in, in the truest sense it would it would be who my true self is that i know who i am and that somebody else sees that and and not because i said something and not because i did something but because of who i am in my core uh they they see that. The best example I can give is uh, I was so privileged uh, about f almost 40 years ago uh, to meet the Dalai Lama. Uh, mm. He was in Newport Beach, California uh, for some soiree, some luncheon that he was uh, speaking at. And um, I had this great benefactor uh, from Hungary, Juju uh, Dizale, uh, who invited me as her guest. And introduced me to the Dalai Lama after the event was over, and I can, I can remember it like it was just minutes ago. I remember physically standing in his presence, and I had no preconceived notions about Buddhism, 
uh, or the Dalai Lama, and I had very little knowledge. Even I, I, I knew very little. I knew more about uh, Hare Krishna and and uh, so forth through the Beatles uh, than I did <laughs> about the Dalai Lama. Right. But I remember the physical aura and feeling that I could sense standing in his presence, and he did not need to say a word to me. And I did not need to, to ask him or say a word to him. I could see him for who he was. And I, there's no way he is not who he was because that energy, that aura that he gave off, you cannot fake. It's, it's as real as, as breathing. I can't even imagine the power. And you know, it's also a bit reassuring to know that that's what the experience was in real life because you just never know like you never know people can put on i'm not saying this about the dalai lama but in our you know digital world people can just put forward any thing they want to you know for image or for you know a lot of things this is why i love live video i'm like go ahead and try to fake it on live video it's not going to last long right and that's why we love hot mics right <laughs> as a society you know we live for those hot mic moments when the politician says what they really feel right <laughs> come on stop with that bs let's let's see who you are let's see who you how do you really feel about that right and, and it's Sad that uh, that people can't be themselves without there being a repercussion or perceived repercussion. Um, and when you had originally asked me about being seen, uh, I I honestly thought it was being heard. I, that's <laughs> part of my my dis. Well, there's not a there's not a huge difference, so I can totally see how you made that jump. But I did, and and it it is. I'm now I'm going to be 66 in a few months, right? I can honestly say I don't know myself 100%. And I know that I don't. I can't because I've I've blocked so much out. I've I've put up so many walls over the years and even breaking them down through the the incredible miracles that I've experienced. Uh I I honestly know that there are parts of me that I don't touch, I don't go in and see. So uh, for somebody else to see me as I truly am uh, has to be impossible if if I myself can't, and I've never met anybody who could. So uh, it's 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 an attempt. You you work towards trying to be that who that person is deep down inside that soul that whatever it is that drives you to be who it is you are, but it. It takes work to to get at it, and then it takes that transparency, that that willingness to be vulnerable, to put yourself out there, and it's not e it's not easy to do. Uh, you know, it's, it it requires so much heavy heavy lifting, and we can only do what we can do. And I really want to uh, celebrate all the work that you have done and all the heavy lifting you have done. And in spite of feeling like you haven't quite achieved yet. You have dedicated your life to helping others and helping others in crisis. And so 
you know, while I hear you and I see you and I understand what you're saying about you don't fully see yourself, I also want to celebrate all that you are doing and have accomplished because without the work that you have done, without the heavy lifting that you have done and the, the really, uh, taking a hard look at parts of yourself, um, I I don't think you could have moved forward with all the good work you're doing for others. Well, I couldn't have. And I also could not have been able to do that if others had not intervened and said and done things that made it possible. And I mean that in every sense of the word. And, and uh, as I told you earlier, I'm, I'm writing a book about the creation of the Hope Center. And those stories are are being compiled in there and they're, they're heavy. I mean, it's not, I, I cannot take credit for what others did and I will not take credit for it. And I also know I could have done so much more. Uh, so it's, it's hard for me to accept compliments like that. I could have, would have, should have. Stop it, Reese. I'm going to force you to accept compliments. So I want to say, <laughs> we'll work on it. So um, how do people find you and or your organization? What is, what is the one message you would want people to hear right now? Uh, that obviously you're not alone. Uh, we're here and, and we're only a tiny fragment of the, the, the group of people out there that are there and do care unconditionally about complete strangers. Uh, and that is, that, that is, it's like the Dalai Lama. You know, it's like, if, if you know anything about the chakras, the, the goal, once you realize that there are seven of them, the goal is to get to the seventh chakra, which is uh, being in the service of others unconditionally. And that's where true nirvana, true peace is. And it seems actually really simple to get to because you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to sign a contract. You don't have to do anything other than 100% be non-judgmental and uh, give of yourself a hundred percent. Be in service of others unconditionally. Yeah, you know, like Pete Townsend said in in his song uh, "I'm Free." I told you what it takes to reach the highest heights, um, but you would just laugh and say nothing's that simple, and it really is that simple. Beautiful. Uh, now, now, while it is easy. It is also extremely difficult because we are still in the real world and we still have our friends, family, the triggers, all the people around us and the old habits and the things that we like to do that were bad for us. And so it's real easy to fall off the wagon of being the Dalai Lama, being a source of others. It's, it's harder to stay on that wagon than probably any other wagon. But it is truly the most rewarding if you can. Mind you, I have not. So, um, <laughs> But you know what? Again, I'm going to go back to is the effort. It's a daily effort. The, the right. effort that yeah, counts. Yeah. It's the effort that counts. We, we need to celebrate every single step of the journey instead of waiting for this huge moment of achievement. It's because when we celebrate every single step, that gives us more energy to take the next step forward. Right. Yeah. So, all right. So, so if anyone is in crisis or if anyone has a loved one in crisis, they simply log on to imalive.org either from their mobile device 
on their laptop, on their desktop, it doesn't matter where. And then what do they do? They click the start chat button? Start chat button. And if there's an available um, crisis intervention specialist, uh, they will be ushered into that room with that person. Perfect. Awesome. And, and there's, there's a little informational survey at the beginning. They don't have to fill out any part of it. Um, it's just to, to give us a gauge. At the end, we push a survey to them to ask them how their experience was because we want to consistently improve uh, what we're doing and we want to make sure that we are meeting people uh, where they need to be met. Uh, we want to be successful in each of those interactions uh, at doing what we're setting out to do. Perfect. Perfect. I'm glad that you said that so nobody's surprised when they go there. Reese, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all that you've shared. Thank you too, Jenny. And it's my honor and pleasure to have been here. Thank you. And for those of you who want to continue on the journey, join the journey with me, the Being Seen journey. Together, we can do this and click the subscribe button and remember to live well, have fun, and love others. Bye, y'all. Thank you for joining the journey on this episode of the Being Seen podcast. As a transformational business coach, Jenny Q coaches you on how to get unstuck in your business and thrive in your life stepping fully into your power, all while having fun. To contact Jenny Q or for more information, jump over to JennyQLive.com.